the teachings of the apostles, or the catechism of the early church. Join Pastor Hook in today's teaching of the Didache. We're going to continue in the Didache, uh, chapter 13. And before we get into that, I just want to um, just recap. Uh, chapters 11, 12, and 13 of the Didache are basically... Um, ways to teach or ways to view teachers of the church. So here's the problem. I don't know if I really addressed this, but here's the problem. In the early church, like there were always rabbis. You know, how, how do we know that the rabbi that comes into your community is a, um, is a true teacher or a true, true prophet or an, a true apostle? Like, how do you know? How do, how do uh, in scripture, of course, it talks about testing the spirits. So you test people, you look at their life and that sort of thing. That's sort of a good, that's a great way to do it. Um, certainly a great way to do it. But in the early church, you have to remember that it was just starting out. There was no rules. There was no regulations. There were stories about Jesus. There were people that said that they're, you know, they, they that they're telling these stories from Jesus. So how do you do that? Well, one way you could do that would be to... Um, one way that you could do that would be to say, well, I was an apostle of Jesus, right? So Peter and Matthew and John, all these people could have gone out and said, well, I was a disciple of Jesus for three years. So of course I know what Jesus talked about. Well, when they passed away or when they weren't available to be in more places, like how do you, how do you know if you've got a true teacher or a false teacher? Um, well, one of the ways you might be able to say that is, well, um, like Polycarp, who was an early Christian author and writer, uh, he said, well, I was a disciple of the Apostle John. Well, of course, he's going to have some gravitas. You know he's a good teacher because he was, uh, he was a disciple of John who was a disciple of Jesus. So if you were a disciple of one of the early disciples, then that gives you the authority to be able to teach in Jesus' name. But as this movement grows and goes to different places, uh, how do you how do you know if you have a true prophet, teacher, apostle, or a false teacher, prophet, or apostle? So that's what chapters 11, 13 through 13 are dealing with. Now, once um, about by about 325 AD, um, it it um, it is not as much of a problem anymore because by 325 AD, uh, Christianity becomes a legalized religion uh, and, and the, um, the uh, emperor Constantine realizes that there's just no great guy, Constantine. I mean, just really big thinker. He's like, you know, we don't have universal teachings. We got one bishop teaching this over here and one bishop teaching this over there. And they're all saying that they're teaching the words of God, but they're different on how do we deal with this. So in 325 AD, um, he calls together an ecumenical council. It's in Nicaea. And all the bishops from all around come to Nicaea and they gather together. I mean, how he managed this in an age without an iPhone or without Zoom is just beyond my comprehension. I mean, you, this just shows you what a great emperor Constantine was. Very good organizer. Um, he had so many skills. Oh my goodness. The great emperor Constantine. So he gets the message out to all the bishops and says, listen, 
We're going to gather together in Nicaea, which is in Turkey, uh, south of Constantinople, kind of in that area. And um, we're going to gather together. We're going to have a council, and we're all going to agree on basic theological truths. And then after we agree on these basic theological truths, you're going to go back to your region, and this is what you're going to teach. Uh, and then they had several different ecumenical councils all the way up to uh, 1054 AD when the Eastern Church and the Western Church split uh, over, over a bunch of things. And, um, and at that point, then the church was no longer unified under the ecumenical council system. Now, the great thing about the ecumenical councils is whenever you get uh, deep I mean, if you're a bishop in the church, in the early church, you uh, definitely are someone who's well-connected with the creator of the universe. You're, you read scripture, you understand the stories of Jesus, you understand you know, how to relate those stories of Jesus to people's lives. I mean, you've lived this bishop. I mean, you first start out as a teacher, right? And then you might, uh, then you might move into a higher level of authority and a higher level of authority, and pretty soon now you're a bishop of a whole region. So in doing that, you have you've really done a lot of the hard carving that God needs to do in your life to get into such a leadership position. And so um, when you bring all these bishops together and you discuss uh, different things, then all those great minds coming together uh, basically come up with some pretty good theology. And so we, in our mainline Protestant tradition, believe that those seven ecumenical councils that came out of that whole period are probably are really good theology and we hold on to those theologies pretty good. But what's interesting is that uh, after the Reformation and then we come over to the United States and, and uh, Christianity starts going into different tribes, it's almost as if we need to go back through the Didache chapter 11 and through 13 to find out um, to test people, or to, you might even be able to say to test denominations if you want to, right? Are these, are these uh, the way we can test a denomination, uh, the way I test a denomination is, can they affirm or confess or believe in the Apostles' Creed? Can, because that was pre-1054 AD. Can they believe in or confess the Nicene Creed? Can they believe or confess the Athanasian Creed? Do they believe and confess the material contained in the first seven ecumenical councils? If they can do all of that, which mainline Protestant churches do, then they are Orthodox. They're an Orthodox church. Uh, so you have the Western Orthodox, which is centered in Rome, and you have the Eastern Orthodox, which is centered in uh, Constantinople, or now it's the Eastern Church, right? Um, all of those still confess or believe all that stuff up until 1054 AD. But now that we have different tribes, uh, I think it's really helpful in the Didache to, I mean, if you have a TV evangelist or uh, and maybe that's the, or the, or the head of a denomination or somebody who purports to be uh, getting words from Jesus, uh, the person that comes to mind that, uh, and I'm not saying anything bad about him, but it's uh, Oral Roberts, right? Who had a vision from God that said he want, he had a 75-foot Jesus come to him in a vision saying, I want you to build the Oral Roberts uh, Medical Center. I think that's what it was. 
And so he used that vision to go and collect money from all of his viewers so that he could build the Oral Roberts Medical Medical Center and the Oral Roberts University and all that sort of thing. And um, uh, that's, that is a tough one because on the, on the one hand, this, these funds that were all gathered together were used to you know, bless the world, right? A medical center, a research center, a university, all these things are blessed the world. The only thing that, that almost makes you wonder is it's called the Oral Roberts Medical Center and it's called the Oral Roberts University. And at some level, was that Oral Roberts pushing for that? For his own vaingloriousness, or was that the people that he was, you know, that followed him? And it's like, no, you did this. We should honor you with putting you a name on this university, on this, on this medical center. And that's tough. That is really, really, really tough. Um, because uh, I think at that point you have to go back and look at the character of him. How did he live his life? How did he treat people? Was it more about him or was it more about the people that he, you know, that he was put in charge of to love? And those are pretty hard decisions. Those are really, 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 really hard um, for any leader, you know, to think about those things. So, uh, and that's what we find in chapters 11 through 13 is how do you test a false prophet? What are the things that false prophets and false teachers do? What is it the true prophets and true teachers do? And um, just, just as a recap, uh, in verse 11, um, I wrote some notes. In verse 11, uh, do they increase in righteousness? Uh, in yeah, in chapter 11, do they increase in righteousness? Do they hoard money? Are they lazy? Do they, uh, if they claim they speak words of God, um, now that one's tough. Like uh, if a person says, I speak for God, then it's going to sound, it's going to bristle in your ears. It's, it's going to, all the prophets spoke words that were abrupt, that, that shook the heart, right? That were, um, that were things that kind of knocked you out of your consciousness. And so uh, prophets are a special case. In chapter 11, uh, it says that a prophet, you should listen to a prophet, that God will judge a prophet at the end of time. Um, and that's how you that's how you judge a prophet. Uh, it's not the words of the prophet um, because God will judge that. The way you judge a prophet is looking at their character. And the, and particularly if somebody says they're speaking words of God, you have to look at their character. Um, look at John the Baptist, who was the last prophet, right? He lived out in the wilderness living off of wild honey and locusts and was a very austere person. That is a person who's not concerned about himself. He's not using the words of God for himself. He's using his words of God for the kingdom. And in the case of John the Baptist, he was there to proclaim that the coming Messiah is about to come. So, you know, one of the things, if somebody says that they're speaking from God and that they have the words of God, I, the things I would look at are how much time do they spend in devotion, uh, in prayer, uh, in contemplation, in tentatio, as, G, as, uh, as uh, Luther would say. I mean, are they spending a good chunk of their time in the presence of God to hear from God? I mean, I would think that if you are, if you truly want to be a prophet, and you're like, I think God wants me to be a prophet. Okay, fine. Here's what you need to do. You need to spend five, six, ten hours a day with God. Uh, in, in that, then perhaps God will start to speak to you. But if you're not willing to put in that time, I, I don't know. I mean, 
we have in, you know, it says in, in, uh, in first Timothy in olden days, God spoke through his prophets, but now he speaks through his word. So now we have God's word that tells us what God wants us to speak. Um, and God's word is enough for what he wants us to speak. If God were to speak to somebody and say, I have a new word that I want to speak, man, it better be in line with his existing words. And man, that person, uh, I you know, better be in touch with the creator of the universe um, and live a life of austerity. Uh, and it's not about them. And it's a life of um, service to the kingdom. So uh, that was chapter uh, 11. And then in chapter 12, um, that, you know, if a, a good teacher or prophet just stays, stays a short time, um, uh, you know, he does, it's, it's, he's not using the words that he gets from God for his own benefit. If he comes into a community, it's just for a short time and then he goes away. Uh, if he is going to stay longer than that, then he better work for himself. Uh, because if, if he's, you know, using this power from God to enrich his own self, you know, say, listen to me, um, you know, but he's not willing to work. Well, then that's, that's a problem. But then, but then there's another problem. And the other problem is, well, what about, like, I'm a pastor. I've been called by my congregation to, uh, to be in this, what's called the office of public ministry. And so I'm given a, you know, wages and, a, you know, all these different things. And isn't that allowed also? And the answer is yes, of course. Um, because, uh, because the Bible says that that's okay. Um, but in the early church, before, you know, before all of this happened, like what happens if somebody does want to remain in a community and to continue to teach in a community? And that's really what chapter 13 talks about. So let's just really kind of look at chapter 13. Um, and it goes like this, beginning in verse one. But every true prophet who wishes to settle among you is worthy of his food. Likewise, a true teacher is himself worthy, like the workman of his food. Therefore, thou shalt take the first fruits of the produce of the winepress and of the threshing floor and of the oxen and the sheep and shalt give them as the first fruits to the prophets, for they are your high priests. But if you have not a prophet, give to the poor. If thou makest bread, take the first fruits and give it according to the commandment. Likewise, when you open a jar of wine or oil, give the first fruits to the prophet. Of money also, and clothes, and of all your possessions, take the first fruits as it seems best to you, and give according to the commandment. So there is allowment in the Didache, an allowance in the Didache, to understand that there are, uh, there are times when a prophet or a teacher decides to settle in a community, that God's called them to settle in a community, and all they want to do is teach and, and be kind of like the leader of that community, be a teacher in that community. In that case, then, according to the Didache, now they've moved from the traveling preacher, now they're settling down somewhere, and now they are worthy of uh, some sort of first fruit offering from the people that they're teaching. Uh, and this is all biblical. It's from the Old Testament that you would give the first fruits to the priests. And, um, and so... A teacher that comes into a community and, and decides to settle and you've tested the character and yes, they are from the word of God and it's not about themselves and you've begged them to stay because you really enjoy it. There's a really good fit. He does decide to stay. Now the Didache says, okay, now it's time to pay him, which is the same thing that it says in, uh, uh, in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, where it says in, se in verse 17, let the elders who rule 
well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So we, in our tradition, kind of hold on to this First Timothy. That's, there are times when a, when a teacher settles, and as they settle, uh, then they're worth, you know, a laborer deserves his wages. And in First Timothy, uh, you know, this is, this is Paul telling Timothy, it's okay to accept compensation for what you're doing. Because uh, you are doing, you are doing the work of the church. It's a double honor, and it's like you don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain, right? You have to, you basically do need to compensate those teachers that are staying among you, which is what we cling to in our tradition to allow us to pay, um, you know, to to biblically have the theological understanding to pay, uh, you know, pastors, teachers, bishops, and all that sort of thing. Um, so uh, that is. Uh, that is why uh, that that is why chapters 11 through 13 exist because basically it is to give guidance to the early church when there was no structure uh, and there were lots of false teachers out there I mean we had Gnosticism uh, was probably the big teaching that was out there that was not um, t- a teaching of the early church uh, there was this idea that Jesus is not God uh, that was that was um, not taught by the early apostles. Uh, the, the Apostles' Creed basically is very very early. Not the actual Apostles' Creed, but the fragments of the early of this before it was called the Old Roman Creed, and even before that, there were other parts of it that they cobbled together. But those were the teachings of the early apostles. I mean, the Apostles' Creed is basically what. Uh, the church believes that the early apostles taught about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that is very, very early. And the idea that that Jesus is God, first of all, it's contained in Holy Scripture. He said, I am who I am. You know, the creator of the universe is with you. I mean, there's no question. That's why they killed Jesus, because he said that he was God. So they had to struggle with that. And that was, you know, part of these ecumenical councils. It's like, how do we describe Jesus how do we describe God? Because in Judaism, it was monotheism. There was one God, and yet Jesus said that he is God. So how do we, rec- and then the Holy Spirit is God. How do we reconcile this for the monotheists, you know, this extremely strong monotheistic culture of Judaism coming into Christianity? Like, how do you meld those two things together? And they spent <laughs> hundreds of years you know, evaluating this and talking about it. And that's how they came up with all the creeds. You know, first the Apostles' Creed and then the Nicene Creed and then this big one called the Athanasian Creed um, from the Bishop Athanasius who, you know, really tried to put structure around it. Uh, to You know, how can you be true God and true man? That's another one. And how can you be, uh, how can you be part of a monotheistic culture if there's different faces to that culture? And all of those um, we have teachings about, and that's what we believe. But those all came out of the early ecumenical councils. All of that stuff came out of that. So for us, fortunately, we have the hard work of the first thousand years of the church to help keep us grounded. Uh, And if you don't follow that, then I would say you're not orthodox, Um, but if you follow that, then you are in line with the teaching of the apostles. You're in line with the teaching of the early church. You're in line with the teaching of scripture, uh, all of those things. 
But just because you deal with the big questions doesn't mean that a teacher doesn't need to pray for God's guidance in the little questions. Like somebody comes to you and says, uh, you know, such and such is this, and, and I don't know how to respond to it. What is God saying about that? You might say, well, let's look in God's word. And you can look and see what all God's word says. Uh, and, then it's, and then they say, well, this is my situation. You know, you might pray, God, give me guidance in this situation. It's, you know, it's a little thing, but for them, it's a big thing. It's like we do have the, the, big, the big questions about God answered. Uh, and it's a great framework. But when we live our day-to-day -day lives uh, in trying to understand, you know, what God is saying in our day-to-day -day lives, you got God's scripture, you got the wisdom of elders in the church, um, you've got wisdom of the, you know, the ubiquity of the internet, you know, as long as they're orthodox teachings. Uh, and then uh, you yourself uh, have to come to God in prayer and ask for his guidance to, you know, how to move forward in the, in the little things, in, in all things. But if you seek God's kingdom first, if you put him first in your heart, put him at the center of your life, then all these things should be added unto you. And you won't get it right I won't get it right. All the advice of all the people won't get it right. Um, the ec seven ecumenical councils, we, you know, pretty good, but it's not perfect um, because no man is perfect. No person is perfect. No priest, you know, no uh, teacher is perfect. No apostle's teaching is perfect. No prophet gets it perfect. Um, we live in an imperfect world and we have to do as best as we can. And we have to be able to live with that imperfection. Um, so it is, according to the Didache, it is okay if a person decides they're going to come and start teaching in your community or be a prophet in your community, uh, and they're settling down in your community, it's okay to compensate them for what they're doing because what they're doing is spending that time with God, spending that time with God's holy word, you know, living among the people, preaching and sharing the good news of God, uh, and not working because, at that level, if you are spending that much time in, with God and you're spending that much time teaching and that much time organizing churches, then at that point, the, these people are very valuable and worth you know, being given compensation for that. And the early church recognized that. And so that's what, that's what the early church did. And again, this is, this is so helpful for today's uh, world because we don't have one central unified church anymore. I mean... We do, it with Jesus, we're all one church. He sees us as all one church. But we have all these different tribes teaching different things. And uh, really the only way that you can discern uh, if they're teaching the truth or not is to, are they following God's word? I mean, are they following God's word? Is it more about themselves or is it more about the kingdom? Uh, do they spend time in prayer? I mean, these are the things that that would make me wonder whether or not a tribe is a follower of Jesus, you know, whether a false prophet or a true prophet. And I, and I think particularly for today in our culture, chapters 11 through 13 are just so helpful for that. So um, I think we'll end it there. We have chapters 14, 15, 16. I think there's only three more chapters left. So I think we'll be able to finish this by next Friday or by, you know, in about three or maybe four more sessions. Uh, episodes as we're now going to call them. So um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear God, thanks for our teachers and our prophets 
and our apostles who labor for your kingdom. Uh, watch over them. Uh, help us to discern between good ones and bad ones. In your name we pray. Amen.